Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Tosh Robinson. Scott Tobias. And behind the boards is Genevieve Kosky. Hello, Genevieve. On the previous episode, we discussed the 1979 film Alien. With this one, we'll look at one of its many descendants, the Daniel Espinosa-directed thriller Life, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Rebecca Ferguson, Ryan Reynolds, and others. Set aboard the International Space Station, it depicts a few tumultuous days after the station intercepts and begins studying some samples from Mars that may contain the first proof of life on other planets. They do. Unfortunately. So take a moment to review quarantine procedures, and we'll be right back to talk about life. This is Dr. David Jordan. Black box recording. In case of death. What have we done? We're looking at the first proof of life. What have we done? On Mars. What have we done? can't let that thing in here. Seal off everything. We've lost all communication. Where is it? I lost it. I lost it. You don't know what it can do. It's hard to watch people die. What is the primal instinct of any life form? To survive. Okay, I'll just throw it out. What did everyone make of the movie Life? If Every copy of Alien is eradicated. <laughs> be pretty mi- life would be pretty mind-blowing. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like Alien in a pinch. Here's my little counter question for you all. Would you like life more if it were called, like, Space Ghoulies from Mars or something? <laughs> like, if it were actually given the, the title of the Schlocky <sighs> B movie that it probably should be or, and kind of is. If it was called Space Ghoulies from Mars, I wouldn't have seen it. <laughs> Okay. So, like, like literally, I would have just dismissed well, okay, it just, as, but like Mars as, like, skeleton of cadaver yeah. kind of, like, level ridiculousness, and I wouldn't have seen it, so. All right. Well, that was that was literally right off the top of my head. I didn't have anything writ- written down there. But, you know what I'm saying? Just, like, a, a title that's, like, this is a Roger Corman movie that he made for five cents. That is a really interesting question. I think if it was called Space Ghoulies from Mars, and if I'd wandered into the theater, I would have spent a fair percentage of the movie thinking, wow, the production values on this Roger Corman film are really impressive uh and i would have been distracted enough by that that i wouldn't have noticed that it was bad until uh until later on but by the time we get to the dramatic good night moon reading and they don't even get to the part i really like which is good night nobody good night mush (laughs) (laughs) you're right that would have fixed everything wrong with this film okay so my my reaction to the film was essentially uh, that was okay i guess (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I, like, I mean, my review for The Verge basically did say, you know, if all copies of both Alien and Gravity were eradicated, <laughs> yeah. this movie might be okay. But my husband saw it last night and, and came home raving about how much he hated it and brought up a lot of plot points that I had just kind of shrugged off as Space Ghoulies from Mars plot points. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny every time you say it. Yeah, it's good. I like it. It's and good. like it's it's one of those movies that it's fine if you walk out of the theater and immediately start thinking about what you're going to have for dinner or how much <laughs> it's going to cost to get the furnace repaired or, you know, when's your next gynecological appointment? Like literally anything. <laughs> That's one of the things I think about after movies are over. I assume that you do. I mean, we like how many times have we discussed? Like, Scott, you really need to get past here. Really, I've got to go. I've got to go. I got to go at least once. I've not even gone once. My point being, if you if you think about this movie at all, like it suddenly becomes a much worse movie. But uh, the the 
thing that he said that, that struck me most was because this really gets straight to the heart of, of movies I hate. You remember in Prometheus, the terrible alien sequel prequel offshoot AU, whatever the heck it is, there's the horrible fangy alien space cobra that the xenobiologist is like, oh, what a cute little thing. I'm going to go to pet it. And it's like, <laughs> it puffs up and it hisses and it rattles and it snarls. And he's like, I'm going to stick my fingers in its mouth. Bob referred to this movie as xenobiologist sticks his fingers in the alien cobra's mouth, the movie. <laughs> yeah. And he kind of has a point. Yeah, I put a uh, tweet saying that it's one of those movies that were a little bit scarier or smarter or deeper. It could have been really good and said it, it's fine. Steve Carlson, a critic Steve Carlson, wrote back and said it, it needed to be dumber or at least less self-consciously trying to be smart, which I think is kind of what we're getting at. I think Space Goalage yeah. from Mars improves it. Yeah. But, no, I mean, but if I it had crappier production values, that would improve it as well. Yeah, it's, it, very, it's too much of a tweener, this thing. Yeah, and it's never a moment that there's never anything that particularly scared me. I thought a couple of the, the attack sequences were kind of effective, but you know, you're never going to get that whole alien popping out of John Hurt's chest moment again, ever, I don't think. But there's nothing that even really tried for that, best I, I could tell. I was, I will admit, in this movie's thrall from start to finish, I, I was gripped by it. So on that level, on that basic space ghoulies from Mars type of level, it, it worked. It was a solid distraction. Uh, but it is not a film that bears a whole lot of close scrutiny. I mean, there were sequences that had me in its thrall, but it kept booting me out. And one of the things that kept booting me out was just poor editing choices, poor storytelling mm. choices, uh, things where I, I find myself saying, but that doesn't make any sense. Here's one of my big questions. Did you think that those space people in space went to Mars at any point? No. I mean, not down on the planet, obviously, but that the ISS had gone to Mars to get the lander. No, I think the lander was sent back somehow. I'm not, I'm not sure how, though. And what did that have to do with the space debris? What was the significance of the space the sta- debris? The space debris is where the alien came from, and without the space debris, you don't have a movie. <laughs> I think it's kind of what it comes no, but down the, to. The alien was on the sample inside the lander. Sure. I thought they just started with them kind of returning home from their mission, and they came back with this sample, and... You thought that they went on a mission to Mars and came back with a sample. No, they caught the sample that was floating through space. Oh, okay. In the beginning. It was like a retrieval thing. I was a little confused by the beginning of this yeah. movie. I'm okay, that's mostly what I'm getting at. Yeah. I, this, this is the am I an idiot check. Because you get the caption that says they're on the Martian mission day one, and they're all on the ISS, and you see a picture mm. of Mars, and then they talk about how they've been like on this mission for eight months. So I'm like... They sent the ISS to Mars. That doesn't seem plausible, oh, but okay. It's a science fiction movie. You gloss over stuff. This isn't necessarily about science. Sure, they strapped I- rockets on the ISS and sent it to Mars to pick up the lander because it was malfunctioning. People have subsequently told me that I'm an idiot and that the ISS was obviously in Earth orbit the whole time. Yeah, yeah I think so that's true. Yeah, you're an idiot. That I think You've is true. You wanted to tell me I'm an idiot. What, what, what what, Hall's been out there for a while, though. He's been up in the space station for a while yeah so he's just been in that that stupid space station for that for like 400 and something days jeez yes i mean that's could have gone to mars and back in that time (laughs) that's just it there's so many like bits and pieces of this movie where i I found myself saying okay so how do these pieces fit together what just happened Mm -hmm. the big action sequence with the soyuz like late late on i i thought that was so poorly edited i literally did not know what was going on Uh, you could see that something is malfunctioning and something somewhere is breaking and it's having an effect on people but like the spatial organization of like what's going on where what is malfunctioning and why you don't know what the plan exactly is except hit the thing with a thing and push into space <laughs> yeah. which doesn't make any scientific sense if there's a problem ever on a ship spacewalk <laughs> just do, just spacewalk that's the solution basically a movie that is about we made an alien and now the alien is eating us should not have <laughs> so many moving parts that you can't keep track of them no, but I mean, but you do focus on the thing on Calvin. You focus on <laughs> why? What Calvi. was what was behind the decision to give the terrifying alien innocu- an innocuous name? I know, well, you know, th- then you can't eat it, right? Once you give it a name, you can't <laughs> well, it's eat got a the face, alien. and you can't eat it. Yeah, 
or beyond the moment in the film where it's named because there's a whole naming contest from the elementary school. So they're really Beach. lucky it's not alien McAlien face. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> that's is true. the. Uh... I, I will. I will tell you. Here's. Here's. I should have done this, Scott, already. But but part of the problem I had with this movie is the way Calvin. I'll, I'll refer to it by its proper name. Moves and interacts and kind of slips in and out of things is so much like Hank the Octopus from Finding Dory. <laughs> But I kind of thought they made a horror movie with Hank the Octopus, and I found it kind of hard to be scared by that. Oh, wow. That never occurred to me. I thought its octopusiosity was actually pretty cool. Like, sure. When it's uh, slithering around on the roof trying to get through the ventilation shafts. I mean, all that brought up for me is like endless fascinating YouTube videos about how octopuses can get through incredibly small spaces because of the lack of hard bones or even like hard cartilage. So there's there are a lot of really interesting videos uh, online of them doing really smart things like unscrewing lids off containers, but also just going through tiny little spaces. Mm-hmm. And they're escape artists. Like, they're really smart and they're really good at getting out of they containers. Like, they like um, oxygen, right? Yeah. They go from ox- one oxygen source to the other. They're pretty mm-hmm. smart in that respect. Yeah, and they just like, they, they wrap around space oxygen sticks. Like, that. it's yeah. really creepy. No, I like I thought his, his octopusness was actually a benefit because he's, I mean, he's like tentacular and, and creepy in a Lovecraftian way, but he also evokes the idea of this kind of alien-looking creature that we all actually know, but that we also know is very smart, very adaptable, and very hard to contain. I didn't think of Hank. And now you yeah, got me thinking that, that about it. it. I can't stop. Yeah, I'm not saying octopuses, octopi, whichever. Gang, aren't gang, scary, gang. But... The plural for octopus is GIF. GIF <laughs> to solve your. Oh. I'm going to dump water in your computer now, Scott. <laughs> um, again, scrutiny. Not not a good, not really a good thing to apply. But I, I found Calvin to be a, a pretty frightening threat. Yeah, because... I want to get out of this segment with on a positive note, even though I didn't didn't love the movie. What worked for you about this movie? The uh, zero G effects, like the first mm-hmm. the first part of the movie, where. <laughs> This, this, this is awful. The first part of the movie where the camera is exploring the International Space Station and people are floating around, I really like the lived-in feel of the way they navigate zero gravity. I like the way they, you know, stop themselves, like, really casually with their feet or, you know, just, like, hook a toe under something to hang on to it. I like the obvious familiarity of this environment they'd been in and how seamless the effects were. But my respect for it actually dropped a notch when I rewatched Alien and realized that they stole that entire idea of the camera slowly exploring the space. Uh, like it's directly out of the beginning of Alien. Hmm. And that, that actually kind of depressed me a little because I, I thought it was really fun. Like when we were first doing it, I was like, oh, this is really cool. It's going to be gravity except with monsters. Though the fluidity of the camera work and, and the movement, that felt a little more gravity-like to me than than alien style wise. Yeah, I admired I admired the purity of the uh, long and broken take at the beginning, although it didn't really I, I I felt like I was watching a long and broken take that had been thought through very thoroughly and not life as it unfolded, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I was watching life, the movie as it unfolded. <laughs> you know what I mean? That is just a bad title. Like again, <laughs> Space Ghoulies from Mars, from Mars would have been better. It just it's so pretentious to have a, a movie with a, with a title like Life. But I'll, I'll uh, say applied to a film that is again sort of a B a B movie that's been dressed up. Hall, Ferguson, and and Reynolds, and most of the rest of the cast are quite good. You know, they they elevate. I would take character. Reynolds out of the list of yeah. pe- people in the movie that I like. I've, but come, I've come to like Ryan Reynolds. Though, though I, Reynolds. I, 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 I mean, love her though; she's great. Uh, Ferguson, yeah. Mm-hmm. I enjoy Ronald Reynolds a good deal. And boy, if you want to just like feel a little better about life, look up some of the videos that are out there of him and Jake Gyllenhaal promoting this movie, just basically hanging out together and like growing it up. They're really cute together. It's a lot of fun. But for me, Reynolds is just a, a bit of a weird presence here because the script was written by uh, Rhett Reese and Paul Warnick, who also wrote Deadpool. Mm-hmm. And there's a moment in early in this film where... Ryan Reynolds is basically playing his Deadpool character, like his his pre-mutation, pre-trauma, smart-ass version of Wade. It, like the dialogue is identical. The delivery is identical. It's, it's just kind a of weird moment. Persona, that's his persona, though. though. Yeah, I mean, that's I mean, that's Van Wilder. Yes, but you know what? There's this thing called yeah. acting. <laughs> and, he, and he's doing it for most of the movie. Okay. So just having him like drop into it just for a little while, it just it felt weird. It felt out of place for I him. wouldn't say most of the movie. Huh? 
Mm. <laughs> yeah, he, he does get he, he does get killed. He gets, quite he early. gets Janet Lead out of the movie. He which does. Is a bold move, I guess. It was. I was thinking, man, is he still alive? <laughs> right? He's not dead yet, is he? As as, as, uh, is, as Calvin just like explodes his insides. It is a very long and messy death. I I was uh, I was very effectively creeped out by that death. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was creeped out by the, the claustrophobia of some parts of the movie. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a really neat idea to have uh, the guy who's a paraplegic and you don't know because he's in space and to have him, you know, effectively say that he wants to stay in space because it's, you know, it's where he's not bound to a wheelchair. He can fly. I thought that character was an interesting character. Hmm. Once again, my problem becomes he kind of ends up with this like relationship with the alien that is not justified in the script. It's like... They looked at Ian Holm in Alien and said, this is really cool. We're going to copy it. But they didn't do any of the background work. He, like, they don't really have a solid motivation for him. And then when he follows through on it, it doesn't really make sense. It's the same way that the alien getting bigger and bigger over time feels like it was borrowed from Alien but without any of the biology to back it up. They're just if the same way the scene of them sitting around the table together in the canteen mm-hmm. feels like it was borrowed from Alien, but they don't have a narrative purpose for that scene. I just I kept feeling echoes of Alien in this movie that were so deliberate, but they can't help but come up worse by comparison. Yeah, and, and to add one more to that, you know, Rebecca Ferguson is the person on board who is, you know, in charge of protocol and quarantines and that sort of thing which again recalls Sigourney Weaver an alien and it makes you think like oh is there going to be another dimension to this is she going to you know make some official decree that's going to kind of alter the dynamic or, or change the story you know in a the same way as maybe Ian Holm does in an alien but then that's kind of just dropped well I mean you actually have the scene where it's more the captain uh, than Ferguson's character but refusing to let the the contaminated guy out of uh, mm-hmm. contamination and then she's instantly overruled once again that's the exact same character yeah. dynamic it's just not as good of a scene Well, we're drawing a lot of comparisons between life and aliens, so we may as well move on to connections. So after the break, we'll be right back to talk more directly about what they have in common. Ready. Lowering oxygen, more carbon dioxide. You sure it won't hurt it? It's a very, very low voltage. Look how fast it's growing. Every single cell is a muscle cell and a nerve cell. All muscle, all brain. It's in between my fingers. It's not letting go. Can I make a suggestion? Can I just go in there and get no, him? No, you're not going to go in there. No, of course you're not, because I have to maintain quarantine. No, I can Stop. do this. I can, I can. I can do this. Um... So it's now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. I almost want to say this has more in common with Alien than Kong Skull Island has in common with Kong. Is that is that too crazy? That's not too crazy. No. Yeah. Kong Skull Island was kind of subtle about its homages with the, uh, hey, this also has two-legged lizards. <laughs> Uh, this not so much with the subtle. Life is like, please don't have seen Alien. Please don't have seen <laughs> Alien. This is. I'm sure the young people aren't going back and seeing movies from the 70s, so this will be totally exciting and new to them. It's just such a weird case. I mean, is 40, 40 years long enough to make a unattributed sequel and hope to get away with it? I like... Or unattributed Venom prequel, as the uh, as the rumors of the internet <laughs> like would have it. Like this movie so much better if it had been a, it turned out to be a Venom prequel. Mm. Keith was having to explain to me what that who Venom, that Venom was. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm still trying to figure out how they're where they're going to get that symbiote. There's a perfectly good symbiote right here, except it's not a symbiote; it's just a murder squid. It could be a symbiote. <laughs> Maybe it just hasn't developed into it. You hit it on the title. It's Murder Squid. <laughs> <laughs> Murder Squid from Mars. Murder Squid from Mars. Oh, yeah, that's a right. good one. <laughs> Murder uh, Squid. Writing that down. Yeah. No, that's good. That's what That's what this movie needs to be called. Come on. How much better is this movie if it's called Murder Squid from Mars? <laughs> I can tell you that every time I brought up Murder Squid from Mars, <laughs> uh, some wag who grew up on uh, Douglas Adams would not say, life, don't talk to me about life, which is a lot I'm really tired of hearing at this point. Okay. So one big difference is this is set right now or in the near future, in the foreseeable future. 
um, you know, orbiting Earth, whereas Alien is set in deep space in the a couple of centuries from now, we can say. Does that make a difference? Does that make life scarier, the idea that maybe this thing could land on Earth? It doesn't make it scarier. It makes it stupider. Mm. <laughs> the, the, the big problem, I think, is one of the things that is so intriguing about Alien is that you know so little about that universe. You get just like these little hints in Alien that there must be like a really large and widespread human civilization out there. You know, there's the possibility that they might have gotten a signal out in deep space. Something's going on out there. Um, but we we know very little about it. When Ash first turns out to be an android, you're like, oh, a, a huge new concept was just introduced into my understanding of what this future world is. There's so much possibility and it just feeds into your feeling of the unknown. With life, you're confronting over and over the fact that like this is pretty much present day technology and you you know better you know that these are the protocol if we discovered alien life would not be let's spray sugar on it and see if we can make it go i'm going to say maybe with the loosened regulations of the of the trump administration <laughs> it might be oh that's true didn't he just like rescind obama's executive order for the clean alien act yeah, exactly <laughs> uh, well i mean that's another thing is that uh no we we actually one of our science reporters did a really fun uh, piece with our our dedicated Jake Gyllenhaal reporter uh, <laughs> as like a back and forth conversation. You're, you're Jake Gyllenhaal in bed. Yeah, uh, she's she's a super fan. They did a back and forth about the like the science of life and why it doesn't really make sense in terms of like how NASA works or really like anything else. And one of the things that came up was like the actual ISS cost something like forty billion dollars, and in this, it's a two hundred billion dollar operation. Mm. There's just so many things going on in life that, like, if you have a rudimentary knowledge of scientific protocols or basic human behavior, you're like, these people are supposed to be really smart. Like, we we make astronauts be really smart, capable people, and these people aren't that. And it makes perfect sense in Alien. You know, they're space jockeys. They're oil rig workers. It's okay for them to not be like mathematicians and super geniuses, but like the people in life are just doofuses. Life isn't always rational, Tasha. <laughs> um, what about space squids? <laughs> that's right. Murder squids. They're crazy. So the other thing too that I was thinking about contrasting is how Alien does take place centuries from now, but certain things haven't changed, like certain social dynamics or work-related dynamics haven't changed, that you have these union workers who are still being mistreated by some large corporation. I mean, that's going to be something that's never going to change, you know, centuries and centuries and centuries down the line. An interesting thought. The, uh, of course, the other thing I really like about Alien is that they smoke uh, constantly <laughs> yes. in space. Smoking yes. in space <laughs> Usually something you don't uh, – well, it's ill-advised, well, there's, usually, but there's, not on that ship. There's tons of old science fiction stories where the smoking on, in space is just a, just a thing. <laughs> a little bit of coffee, some coffees there. Sure. Like, I love it. Um, but, well, we were talking about decades differences in effects here, and I really don't want to be – Digital sucks. Practical is awesome because I think there's some very effective moments in, in life. But I don't know. I find – well, I just find the alien a lot scarier than, than Calvin. Calvin has his moments. But uh, um, you know. <laughs> The name just diminishes him already, doesn't it? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Keith, you sound so defeated when you're talking about like the ways in which you didn't love life, the movie. <laughs> Why? Like why? I mean, why? I really, why do you feel an apologetic uh, response to this movie that was not very good? I really wanted it to be good. It's the sort of movie, if done right, is very much up my alley. I'd had, you know, not necessarily high hopes, but I, th I thought this was an easy, should be an easy double for any big studio film with this budget and this cast and this sort of can't miss premise of uh, monster gonna get you in space. You know, I think it could have been made without being quite so derivative. And just a few like moments that really scared me or something. A few really scary scenes versus a couple of mildly creepy scenes would have made a big difference in this movie for me, but it never got there. So yeah, I guess I felt a little, I was, I was not expecting to be as disappointed by it as I was. I mean, you, you can't, you can't possibly hope to match alien in terms of creature design and even, or even effects. I mean, sure. it's, it's just, it's, phenomenal it's you, you can't top that but and i appreciate that calvin is so different yeah i did I, and, I, and i appreciated that you know calvin is a really tough creature it grows and it expands it's very uh it adapts uh really well it seems to have an ability to uh 
uh, think it's, at a it's point. tough. We don't understand its biology, and it's and we right. Don't know, and it, it's, it's, it is, and 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 it does like step, sidestep the alien thing and just blow it out the airlock because it actually does okay in the vacuum yeah, of space. I mean, we never. I don't think we ever um, find any vulnerability whatsoever to right. this creature. Yeah, and um, right, right to the very end when <laughs> when uh, it lands on Earth. Full uh, spoiler alert. What do you think about that? Clever ending. You thought? Yeah. And, and just, yeah. just, just <laughs> poor uh, Rebecca Ferguson just gets like scuttled off into uh, deep space while uh, the alien lands in the ocean. Not, not for you. I'm just, I'm shaking my head just, just to listen to Scott like slowly like wind down. <laughs> also reaching that point of sounding defeated. I am kind of over horror movies that walk right up to the edge of somebody living happily ever after and then give you a big like screw you ha 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 this is hilarious uh, the only thing that sells that moment for me is like Rebecca Ferguson's really palpable terror mm-hmm. um, which was one of the strongest emotions I felt in response to a character in that film mm-hmm. but the big ha ha we got you you thought this movie would not have the most cynical depressing ending possible and you were <laughs> wrong uh, ending to a movie I never like that. Like as as an inveterate cynic, I don't need a happy ending. Some of my most favorite movies in the universe have really, really downer endings. But when a movie makes a point of like patting you on the head and telling you everything's okay so it can jerk the rug out from under mm-hmm. you, it just feels kind of gross to me. And in this case, it also just raises a bunch of questions. Did <laughs> did, did Calvin grabs his hand because yeah. he's steering it into space, and it, the Calvin yeah. is like, "No, I was we're going to Earth that now." Too. But that's what yeah. I think. Like, I think Calvin has the ability. I think he's evolving so fast that he thinks his way through. I mean, he, th- there's a lot of focus on the steering in that scene, a little little steering knob, and uh, <laughs> a little steering knob motion here. Um, there's a lot of focus on that, which makes you think that Calvin is already kind of figuring out through osmosis or whatever murder squids do to <laughs> find the, find his way back to Earth. Speaking of, I think that a murder squid would do quite well in salt water, water right? So he's probably ready to go as soon as they open the hatch. Okay. This is a, a like a big question for me that my husband brought up, and I'm really curious what you guys make of it. In Alien, we know what's going to happen if one of those aliens ever gets on Earth. You know, they're really difficult to kill. They're really good at hiding, and they're really good at reproducing very quickly. And once they start making eggs, it's kind of all over for the human race. Like that's the idea of maybe the alien might get to Earth is brought up over and over throughout the alien franchise, and it's meant to be terrifying. At the end of life, Murder Squid is on Earth. What does that mean? Like suddenly it's in a place with gravity. Like earlier, it couldn't stand its uh, environment changing very slightly chemically, and that just made it go completely dead. Now it's going to be in a place where the atmosphere is completely different. There's a terrestrial gravity. It's surrounded by salt water. Even if we assume it adapts to all that and that it's just as good in water as it is in space, we don't know anything about its capacity except that it's really good at strangling individual people in vacuum. Like, what's Re- going yeah, to happen to the Earth? reproductive abilities are definitely in question. So, uh, I mean, we don't know anything about that. No. It could be a it could be a host prequel, right? This could be like a host, yeah. Yeah, right? I mean, it does it does land in Southeast Asia, right? Hmm. But of course, that monster comes from like formaldehyde dumping. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, I th- I, I would not put anything past Calvin. He's uh, he's people un- underestimate Calvin throughout the the movie, and that's uh, and what happens to them? Nothing good. No, they get crushed. Yeah, <laughs> they have to good read Good Night and Moon to each other in the saddest <laughs> way possible. Oh. Yeah. Guys, they thought they were making something uh, important, weren't they? Didn't they? <laughs> well, like, they seem to have really thought they were making gravity. And especially with that ending, it's like, we're going to remake gravity except with the screw you ending. But once again, I kind of felt like, yeah, but this is a movie I've seen before. And it it is the same thing when the uh, when the ISS gets smashed and comes apart. I just kept thinking, I've seen this exact same thing happen in gravity with better justification, better editing, better shooting, and a better sense of stakes. Yeah, that, I mean, that's the problem with the whole thing. But um, and I'm just stuck on the fact that they're bringing baby books up to space. I think, I think, I think they should have replaced uh, Goodnight Moon with Amelia Bedelia. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would, have been, that would have made a much more touching film. I think an e-book would actually make more sense. <laughs> just to conserve Wiggle. space. 
or maybe a fun comparison here is, is one Scott suggests is one-on-one uh, alien-on-alien battle between Calvin and the Xenomorph from Alien. Who would win? Hmm. Well, I, I, I almost think like you have two separate questions here. Oh, let's hear them. Okay. Well, because one is like, we're talking about one-on-one. Oh, who would you fight? Oh, who would I? I would lose to both of them yeah. horribly. I mean, they immediately kill me both. Kill both. Uh, that would not be even a contest. But between the two of those, one-on-one, you got to give Calvin the edge. But we have not well, seen wait, any. Do you? I mean, is Calvin immune to humongous amounts of acid? Calvin, there is no evidence that Calvin is vulnerable to anything. Whereas we have seen aliens get killed. So I'm going to give Calvin the edge. However, we're not certain that Calvin can reproduce, and we, we certainly know that, that the aliens can. So, you know, more in numbers than possibly they they could. Uh, but if Calvin keeps growing and becomes Kaiju Calvin, you know that? <laughs> Kaiju Calvin is also a movie I would have gotten to see. Yeah, yeah. Sequel. Here's my wackadoo theory. Okay. Here is a thing that I think could have actually made life a better movie. What if, like, Calvin, you cannot believe for a moment that they sent a lander down to Mars and it happened to scoop up the one ounce of of dirt that had Calvin in it. And Calvin is apparently a single-celled organism before Mm -hmm. they start, you know, feeding him junk food. And (laughs) then he goes, he gets the Twinkie defense for why he ran amok. I love love it. It's just like, oh, Calvin's gone. Let's let's just keep poking him until he does some more stuff. Zap him with some electricity. But they start off by cramming him full of glucose. So no wonder he's hyper. He's like a a sugared up little kid on Saturday morning. (laughs) What if... The reason Mars is a dead planet is because of essentially a, a biomass Kalvin. Like Ooh. that thing either evolved there or came there from someplace else and basically just got bigger and bigger and bigger and ate literally everything and mm. left a dead planet behind and then died in its turn. And possibly it's been dead for a million years. Uh, its giant biomass body has been reduced down to sand and dust. And the only thing left is like tiny, tiny little dead fragments of its body. And that's and it, it like the entire surface of Mars is permeated with them, and mm. that's why any random sampling of Mars dirt is going to be like fifty percent Calvin cells, and that's why they <laughs> happen to find one. The but, other fifty percent is Hobbes, right? Hobbes <laughs> <cells>. <laughs> yes, exactly. Which means that to us they're imaginary cells, so we don't even see them, but the Calvin cells know they're there. I just I feel like they really missed a beat by not bringing up the destructive potential of Calvin and just kind mm. of leaving it as like now he's a space squid on Earth. I guess it is a supremely optimistic thought that the saga would continue in lives, right? In lives. <laughs> what do you mean life too would be lives? Or Jif is these is yeah so so uh, I, I guess we might find out later but 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 again I, I have to go Calvin over Alien just because we don't see any evidence whatsoever that Calvin is vulnerable to anything I think you know I think you're right I think if Calvin is potentially capable of just digesting a planet then he's going to be he's going to beat Alien Keith. Yeah, no, I mean, the alien, just by virtue of having orifices, is vulnerable to Calvin in a way mm-hmm. that I'm not sure Calvin is vulnerable to just being uh, chewed on by those uh, terrifying teeth. we got to destroy all copies of Alien now, right? <laughs> Who would it be better to be killed by? Oh. I mean, we... Uh. Okay, here is... You, you asked for things we liked about life. One of the things I liked about life is it's pretty creative about the kills. Yeah. Like, most of the people, they, they die in Calvin-related incidents, but they don't get their head bit off by Calvin. Ooh. The person that we see die of direct Calvinage, that looks really protracted yeah. and painful. Yeah. Like, I'd rather I'd rather go the way Brett goes. Yeah. I mean, the problem, though, with the alien is sometimes they will not kill you right away. They'll, yep. they'll That's pretty bad, though. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's it. That, that, I was thinking, oh, of course you'd want it, the, the alien to kill you. But if they do all the stuff where they're taking you back and impregnating you. Yeah. Right? There's deleted scenes in Alien where they uh, Ripley stumbles on a nest that's being made of Harry Dean Stanton, who's still alive, and some mm. other characters. Top Scarlet. And Tom Scarrett's character, wow. yeah. So, Tom yeah. Scarrett. I know. Well, Tom Scarrett's the one that talks to her and begs her to kill him. That's right. I yeah, mean, that's, that's a really, I, like, I've seen the, the shot of that. It's, it's horrifying. Yeah. But not so horrifying that the movie wouldn't necessarily be improved by it, though, right? No, the, I mean, a lot of really good choices in the first Alien. you got to kill your kids sometimes. Like, not literally, but, you know. <laughs> wow. Um, Says one of the parents in the room. <laughs> Did you read that like a Dr. Spock uh, book? <laughs> The or for- possibly in Good Night Moon the somewhere. For- the, forbidden, <laughs> the forbidden chapters. Use of space here. This is, uh, I think they 
I would say they basically make much the same use of space where, where it becomes an outside force that's a, a threat in itself. Am I, Scott? Well, I was thinking, Scott, I, was thinking not, I was thinking of not outer space, but the actual space oh. that we are within. Well, I am correct in saying that outer space is sort of a, a, another adversary in both films. That is true. But the interior is what I want. Because in space, wanted. Scott, can people hear you scream? No. no they, can't, they can't hear you do anything. They can yeah. hear debris whipping by really fast, <laughs> making whoosh noises, though. <laughs> yeah, that is true. What do we even know about space, right, guys? <laughs> you, uh, you know that the ISS is a real thing, Scott, right? <laughs> I do. So, so, but I, I wanted to kind of deal with the in, interior spaces because the ISS is much more cramped than the Nostromo. The Nostromo is pretty spread out. It's got a great diversity of spaces, as, as Tasha got into before, uh, some white spaces and then also some uh, you know, drippy, uh, uh, noir-type black spaces. It practically has environments. It's got yeah. terrains. Yeah, this is this Cormans it up. It's like, okay, let's let's get rid of that and make it small and make it compact and and have them be really st- trapped into the in this smaller area with Calvin who can slip in slip in and out through the uh, air vents. And, and I think again, the movement through space, the the mise en scene is much different in the two films. A, a, a alien being so strongly influenced by 2001. And I think the camera work and the dynamic in life is much more gravity-like than alien-like. Yeah, then that's not a value judgment. I think it works actually quite well in life. The like camera work is very fluid. I don't think we have a really good sense of where we are in relation to other, you know, I, I don't think the suspense craft level is not really at, at the level it should be with life and I think there's some confusion in some, uh, that needn't be there in some of these action set pieces. There's an interesting contrast there between between Alien and Life. That's an area where they don't really have a whole lot in common. I mean, the ISS in Life is basically a series of tubes. <laughs> like the internet. Like, exactly like the internet except, uh, you know, with people kind of shoving, shoving everything around them in order to like fly faster through them and you really feel the limitations of that space. I mean, it's a really interesting thing, I guess, that in in the ISS, the problem is the space is small and you're in there with an energetic thing that can maneuver in it in zero G better than you. And in Alien, the problem is that the spaces are vast and you're in there with something that can hide better than you. There's not a whole lot of claustrophobia in Alien until you get towards the end. Mm-hmm. There are just these like vast echoing chambers and endless traversable hallways. But it's just as threatening, you know, mm-hmm. because there's something in there that's more dangerous than you are. I, I think that makes for an interesting contrast. Yeah, and interesting contrast is what we're uh, what we're here for. So let's uh, we'll wind up this segment uh, and move on to the next one. But before we do, we, I wish you know that you can find Alien on on Blu-ray and DVD and streaming services. I have the quadrilogy, Keith. Mm-hmm. I do too. Quadrilogy. It's a thing the, now. The new packaging that I have refers to it, I think, as the alien legacy. So they, they nice. killed that frustrating <laughs> fake word. That I think he hates it so much. That's why I bring I, it up as often as I can. Life can currently be seen in a theater near you. We'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Tasha, you want to kick us off? Sure. I have a library of things for you to experience that are film-related but are not films. The first one is a neat little thing. All right, so uh, in Alien, you have a bunch of people stranded on a, a planet having wrecked their ship. You know, they punched a hole in it. They need to fix it. And they send a crew member down a hole, like on a string into a room full of alien eggs uh, that are very threatening. Every single one of those elements comes from a short story uh, written in 1953 by Clifford D. Simak. That story called Junkyard, you can't find the text online, um, but if you go to tangentonline.com, it's a review magazine, they have radio plays, and they have a radio play of the short story Junkyard, which takes that premise to a very different conclusion. It's a pretty creepy conclusion. It's a it's a pretty creepy little short story about people stranded in space and uh, alien eggs that are stealing away their memories one by one, so they can't actually remember how to fix their ship or how to medically help each other when people get hurt. And it's a really neat story. It's a really fun audio portrayal of the story. 
Um, so I highly recommend looking it up and listening to it. It's a, a radio play from 56 where they took Simac's story and turned it into an episode of a an anthology radio show called X-1. So I recommend that both because it's a fun story uh, with some alien history attached to it. I mean, this is – Dan O'Bannon has, has openly acknowledged that this was where he got all of these ideas. Um, there are a bunch of different influences on alien. And Didn't he say something like he stole from everything? Yeah, and O'Bannon's been really open about like pointing people in all of the different directions. So that just kind of leaves a, a really fun little trail of crumbs for you to follow to interesting little offshoots like this. Um, a few other things that are out there that are not alien related, but I just think were neat this week. I want to call out former uh, Next Picture Show participant Rachel Handler wrote this really fun piece for MTV News about Donnie Darko and what's actually going on in Donnie Darko uh, because of the film's anniversary. She basically broke it down scene by scene. Here's what's happening in this sequence. And here's what, according to uh, voluminous research on the internet with people discussing the movie, here's what's actually happening. And it's funny, you know, like so much of her writing, it's uh, it's kind of playful and ir- irreverent. But it's also a really interesting piece of just kind of film scholarship of here's what people have decided uh, this movie is about. And here's how people have untangled the timelines and the symbolism. So I highly recommend that. Uh, it is over at MTV.com where she works. Uh, the title of that article is No Offense, But What Is Donnie Darko? <laughs> it's a very Rachel title. Well, and that's another thing too that she she's she was uh, she's all you always say she's very funny and we know, we know that. But she can really she's a good researcher. She's very mm-hmm. Tasha asking that and Genevieve asking that and, and Keith, well, yeah, I'm the only I'm the only I'm the only slack researcher at this table. Scott, like I'll just wing it, Tobias. <laughs> yeah, I'll just wing it. Uh, she's very good at sort of really digging into these things and giving giving you some good information. So. And I just I really enjoy her voice over there in general. We miss you, Rachel. Yep. A couple more things, both written by the same writer, uh, both for the same publication. Um, if you saw the recent Beauty and the Beast or uh, if you decided to not see the recent Beauty and the Beast, it doesn't really matter. If you liked the original Beauty and the Beast, you'll probably want to read an article at Vanity Fair called Beauty and the Beast's Lumiere and Cogsworth Have a Fascinating Real Life Backstory. That is a long headline but uh, it is a Darren King article that is just about how the key animators basically had that relationship, had the personalities of the characters that they were making and had that kind of uh, constant uh, – they were constantly clashing with each other. They shared a desk and they kind of hated each other. Um, and they put that into the characters. I'm often not big on – you know, this person has a similarity with their character and therefore it's a, an interesting story kind of things. But in in the case of Disney characters, it's a really longstanding habit of the animators to either caricature people who are working at Disney at the time or caricature the people who are doing the voices for characters when they animate them. And Darren puts together just a really interesting uh, history of these two people working together, what they did at Disney, and how they worked together on Beauty and the Beast. And it's really fun. But finally, Darren, also at Vanity Fair, did this amazing article called Game Over, Uva Bowl, that is about how uh, our favorite terrible director, uh, has quit the movie industry in order to run a restaurant. <laughs> and it's simultaneously like a an embed history of the making of his final film, uh, which was this direct-to-Netflix thing that had about a $20 budget and sounds horrible, and a history of his uh, filmmaking career, and a look at him in retirement. It is full of amazing, amazing factoids about Yui Bowl's career and about his personality. It's full of just tremendous quotes and it's it's full of provocations because Uwe Boll was involved mm-hmm. so game over Uwe Boll uh, if you have ever seen any of this man's movies or if you want to be persuaded why you never should see any of this mm. man's movies I cannot recommend this article enough uh, Darren King Vanity Fair game over Keith what about you what have you seen lately that's fun you know I've been going back to some old favorites um i wrote a piece on i basically i miss john waters movies i miss john waters making movies and inspired by watching multiple maniacs 
uh, which just came out on Blu-ray and it's his second feature and, and sort of really is his breakthrough, uh, film. And, and it is still, you know, I was talking to our friend Noel Murray about this. It's still a really not a comfortable film to watch in any way, but no. really, but really funny and, and still, it is a provocation that still works. It was, you know, released in 1970, and here we are, so many years later, and it's it's still uh, doing what it's always done. Uh, but I, I just watched Serial Mom today too, which also coming out on Blu-ray, and uh, it's him doing the same thing within a very mainstream context. Uh, he he just had a couple of crossover films, you know, Hairspray and, and Crybaby, that proved that he can make PG and PG-13 films. And this is his return to R-rated film, but uh, filmmaking. But it's him doing a big mainstream studio comedy, but uh, with Kathleen Turner and Sam Waterston. But it's it's so much a John Waters movie. And it's, I think it's probably the, the best of his late, his post-Hairspray Crybaby movies. But uh, Yeah, I take it over Cecil B. Demented and... Um... And uh, Dirty Shame. Yeah, but I, 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 I like Dirty Shame. I like Dirty Shame. That's what it's only one that doesn't really work for me. But I should I should watch it again. But uh, no, Serial Mom, I, I recommend it. And just John Waters in general. I don't know if there'll ever be another John Waters, but uh, um, I wish there was more John Waters in the world right now. Yeah. Where does Multiple Maniacs fall on the John Waters gross out scale? I've never seen that one. It's pretty gross. <laughs> pretty gross. But it's you know there's there's no actual excrement uh, consumed in the film. Uh, there is. That's quite a bar. Yeah, but there is a. But it's a bar you've got to set with John Waters. With, with so many of them, it's just it's with, so, with this one and some it, in Pink Flamingos and Female Trouble too. But there's there's so many long unbroken takes, which is partially a stylistic choice, and partially just you know that's what the budget they had just to keep the camera rolling. So he refers to it as like looking like a bad Cassavetes movie. But there's these just scenes that just go on and on. Um, there's a, a quote unquote rosary job scene that is cut <laughs> between. Um, said said act and and then the stations of the cross, um, but there's also just scenes of, of D- divine the main character played by divine uh, hanging out with her topless daughter and her daughter's boyfriend as they like really go at each other making out and just having a conversation between this and it's just it just it's, it's it's like it's funny and it's provocative and it's like really you need to cut away I can't look at this anymore <laughs> either um, I'm a fan uh, so it's, it was nice to revisit those movies. Scott, how about you? Um, well, I'm going to be able to talk about violence, which my beloved <laughs> violence, uh, and rec- a movie, recommend a movie called Raw. Uh, Raw is an extreme French horror film that more than deserves mention alongside such other French extreme horror films uh, like Inside, High Tension, Martyrs, and Trouble Every Day. Uh, and I will contend, I think, that the French outdo the Japanese in, in, in grossness. Uh, and uh, raw in, in raw films pizza. or just in, in general, <laughs> you should probably clarify films. that statement. No, I mean, I, I mean, you've got you've got two different extreme horror movements, and um, I got I got to say, I think the, the French are just sicker than the Japanese. Um, uh, anyway, uh, Raw has a lot in common with another French film uh, by a woman named Marina Devan uh, called In My Skin, uh, which is a Cronenbergian story about a woman who inflicts wounds on her own body. Uh, Raw is also directed by a woman named Julia de Kurnow, uh and concerns itself with the experiences of a, vet, of a veterinary student who's also obsessed with peeling flesh and ravaged bodies. Um, and uh, the premise is basically she is a vegetarian and uh, she gets a taste of meat as part of this hazing ritual. This this campus is full of uh, uh, these shocking hazing rituals. And, uh, and then she starts to develop quite a taste for it and seeks it out. And it gets grosser and grosser, and then she has this relationship with her sister, who's who's quite psychotic, and and uh, it's like it's becomes a quite interesting dynamic. But it's very stylish, it's beautiful to look at. It's in CinemaScope. It's got a very cool score and and, and music. It's um, really beautiful. It's a beautiful, beautiful, shocking French horror film. That if you have the, the stomach for that sort of thing, which of course I do. I would recommend it a great deal. I've heard nothing but good about that movie. Yeah, just you just have to be just have to brace yourself for it because it is, it's it's out there, but uh, it's a substantial piece of filmmaking. Like the, like as much as I love in my skin, this one is uh, just on a craft level is uh, another step beyond. It's really formally impressive. I mean, from what I've read, it sounds like something uh, certainly much, much, much more graphic, but kind of conceptually a little bit along the lines of Teeth in that it's yeah. like a coming of age movie. It's a heavily metaphorical movie. Mm-hmm. Um, did any of that track for you or were you just fix it in your beloved violence? Well, no, Teeth, I don't think men figure into 
raw quite as much as they do in teeth in terms of just how the the relationship between men and women you know figure into the themes of, of of the film but i think you know i mean you could you could show them as part of a retrospective and and have some things to talk about for mm. sure um but again on a craft level this is leagues above a teeth it's very very well done neat i shouldn't say neat again but cool everything's neat All right, and that's it for this week's neat edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episode's coming out April 11th and 13th. Tasha, what do we have lined up? The new live-action adaptation of Ghost in the Shell has taken a lot of flack for a lot of reasons. And in our next episodes, we'll talk about some of them and about the visually rich, ambitiously drawn world where the film takes place. And of course, we'll get into some of the history of the movie, including the 1995 anime film that inspired it and the manga that both films are adapting. Ghost in the Shell draws on a lot of recognizable science fiction movies for its visual iconography, and one of its major influences is The Matrix, the Wachowskis visually groundbreaking 1999 film about a dystopic future where computers reign supreme over humanity. Both Ghost in the Shell and The Matrix are fundamentally about protagonists who lose their bodies inside machines and have to question reality and discover their own identities as a result. But there's a further connection. When the Wachowskis were trying to get The Matrix funded, they used the original animated Ghost in the Shell movie as a fundraising tool, showing it to producers and explaining that they wanted to capture the same feeling in live action. And when you see visuals in the new Ghost in the Shell that seem Matrix-inspired, it's in part because The Matrix has visuals that were inspired by the original Ghost in the Shell. If the killer robots let us, we're going to unpack this spiral of inspiration and imitation next time when we put the 2017 Ghost in the Shell and the Matrix together and see how they compare. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Alien and Life and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Tasha? Uh, you can find me as usual, uh, both writing and uh, behind the scenes at theverge.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Scott? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. And you can find my bylines at uh, New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, Vulture, Variety, uh, Uproxx, Guardian. I'm the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope Labs Musings. Keith? Oh, you can find me behind the scenes and uh, writing uh, at uprocks.com and on Twitter at kfips3000. Uh, the silent but very present Genevieve Kosky can be found on Twitter at, at genevievekosky.com and you can find her at vox.com. And you can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net via Twitter at, at nextpicturepod and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. And while you're there, think about rating and reviewing us. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keeps the show going. Thanks to Colin the Animal Griffith for his assistance producing the show. And thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. The next picture show is proud to be a part of the film spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. I said that's life. And as funny as it may seem. Some people get their kicks stopping on a dream But I don't let it, let it get me down Cause this fine old world, it keeps spinning around